this is the kind of thing where like 30 years from now, people are going to look back and be like, I can't believe that system was ever even allowed to exist. I can't believe that we were okay with this level of just ridiculous design. That was Michael Kelly, also known on the streets as Ozymandias. You may know Michael from the work that he's done in the community as a founder of the Ants Guild, or through the work that he's done through Move Capital, Lyric Ventures, and most recently NDC. But today, Michael is here to talk about his role as co-founder of the Open Forest Protocol. We begin with exploring what the problem is between our relationship with the planet and issues surrounding the environment. And then, very quickly, we descend into exploring what is wrong with the system trying to address what is wrong with the environment. Michael presents a unique and, I must say, rather compelling thesis for carbon and how to generate value from nature. Along the way, there's some of the recurring themes are why blockchain, why near, and why does this matter? I really enjoyed this conversation because Michael is a man of history, he is a first principles thinker, he is a contrarian, he is a near OG, and basically everything that comes out of his mouth could very easily be written on a stone and preserved for history because oh man, is the content of this podcast going to age well. Without further ado, let's dive into this conversation with Ozymandias. Enjoy. I'm ready to spit some honest truth. Oh, yeah. Okay. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, ABB. Today, it's a first because we have a very special guest on for the second time. Welcome, Sir Michael Ozyman Diaz. Thank you. Super happy to be back. Last time I was here was almost. A year and a half ago, I think. Would have been towards the very origins of the podcast. You were one of the first guests. Uh, and you impressed us back then because we knew your community involvement, but we had a lot of talking about philosophy, aliens, even though that part of the conversation got lost. Got weirdly lost, the alien discussion. That was just, that should be noted because that's actually common when you talk about these kind of things. But yeah, it's all right. And a lot has changed since last time. We should probably not mention it at the beginning that hopefully it is, but it will not also be lost. But I was actually going to wear a tinfoil hat just to honor the past experiences that we've had. Uh-huh. But I started reading through your thesis, through a manifesto on carbon, and my brain exploded and melted at the same time. And I thought it may be disrespectful or it may be setting the wrong scene because it is quite the body of work and it's an entire world on its own. So what I suggest is let's dive deep, like straight away into the open forest protocol and we'll see how much time we have towards the end to discuss some of the other things that are also very active in the near communities, such as investing, NTC, et cetera, I think. Yeah, that's perfect. And I, I really, at least the way that you do, you're coming from a crypto native audience and approaching this more from a big picture macro. I'm hoping to avoid a little bit of the kind of normal nitty gritty that you get when you talk about the intersection of climate and crypto and getting more like big picture, which I think that article starts to lay out with what we're dealing with. hundred percent. I think that everyone is, I mean, everyone that thinks or that they want to think they're doing their job properly, they're very much slave to a format or a style. 
there are questions they think they should be asking, what they think people want to know, what they think the tram restrictions may be. I really like, as you mentioned, the format of just completely breaking with any prescription, be it time or topic or whatever the case may be, and enabling people to just explore and roam their consciousness. I don't think there's been one podcast, at least from the ones that have been published, that I haven't been really surprised by how insightful people can be when you really just allow them to talk and you ask probing questions. And I do rant a little bit too much, so I'll stop now, but why don't you start by telling us in a couple of sentences what you do in the ecosystem and then we'll double click on RFP. I would say I've been around the near eco since May of 2020. And for me, I've only ever worked in crypto. I don't think of the different roles as different roles per se. I think of all of those as just different hats of being an ecosystem builder. So beyond co-founding OFP, also am founding partner of Lyric Ventures, and then also try to do active community work on things like the NDC and a whole bunch of other, I guess you could say DAO-based projects or side projects, just that round out full understanding of where crypto is today and where Specifically, Nier is going to be going in the future. That's good. I think that what we have in common is very early on, we identified something on Nier that made us be believers from the very beginning. And even though it may seem like we're involved in two things, or perhaps I may say too many things, they're all kind of pieces in the puzzle that we feel are necessary to really fulfill that vision. None of these pieces have been so evident or perhaps could have such a strong impact as this mammoth project of the Open Forest Protocol or OFP. So what we may do, just to see if we can introduce the concept in a way that we don't lose the audience to brain damage in the first 20 minutes, I may read the first prompt from your thesis and then we can start deconstructing all the different limbs of it. How does that sound? Yeah, that's cool. Let's do that. Carbon credits are the start of a conversation on the value of nature and as an extension, the nature of value. I love the play on words from the very beginning. (laughs) This is a young conversation that inevitably leads to the understanding that nature cannot be valued only from the benign interests of corporation. An asset is purchased, but a value is transacted. Inevitably, this conversation on the nature of value and the value of nature leads to the basis for a new monetary system grounded in nature, whereby nature is a basis of finance and not the object of financialization. I'm getting there. Basically, carbon is a clown out of the box. It's over. We have officially accepted some form of natural value, and now it only grows more. And here is the final hook. Carbon is the start of a new conversation on the nature of value and crypto is the beginning of the internet of value. Sure. Ooh. Yeah. So there's a lot, I think, to unpack there. Maybe as a law, necessary context for people to understand it in many ways actually goes all the way back to like early 17th century English philosophy or kind of the philosophy of what you would get between like a Locke or a Rousseau looking at what's the role of private property? What's the role of this nature? How should we build our systems around these things like private property and within private property, what's the owner's obligation towards nature? If you privately own a piece of land, what kind of, what does that offer you? And I think very broadly, we're coming to the end of that cycle. We've gone full circle all the way through of kind of beating out what someone can do with their private property. And now we're realizing actually that a system where 
there is no higher framework for valuing these life essential processes is actually going to be quite quickly and suddenly disruptive for everybody. And this refers to your rivers. This refers to the quality of lakes and if they're getting poisoned by mines or not. This refers to your forests, especially the biodiversity rich one. It refers to your air quality as well from a higher level. It refers to everything. And up until this point, the problem has been addressed fragmented as piecemeal. And really where like the stage setting here is imagine for a second that we now actually have the capability or the capacity to start to think of a new system that could unfold over the next 50 to 80 to 100 years that is going to restructure this current understanding of how we're relating to nature and hopefully bring it into the conversation. That's High-level presupposition of what people should understand where we're coming at from this, with a particular emphasis that we are straight failing, right? So that, that's also the, un, the unspoken presupposition. Why are there carbon credits? Why is there even a discussion about carbon credits? How are we looking at the future of our species? What does the Anthropocene mean for a seventh extinction or however many extinctions it's been? Like, things are not okay. And now we need to start asking, what can we do to improve slash flip the switch on how the system works, right? Interesting. To make this podcast as engaging as possible, I'm going to open up with saying out of the gate. As we delve into the different limbs and categories and you identify very quickly what would be some of the arguments or resistance or counterpoint to the mainstream, I identify with some of them. I've never really, perhaps until three hours ago when I started researching for this podcast, I've never really paid much attention to carbon credits because I'm probably in one of two camps or both of either A, it doesn't really do anything for the environment, it's just a bureaucracy, and B, it's a way of extracting value of a new system, but perhaps the same system, or perhaps even more cynically, the people pushing it want to entrench themselves politically, so it's almost as a front. So I'd be very curious before we dissect that the whole thesis whether these are beliefs that are captured more deeply within the movement itself, or whether these are some principles that you have dissected by joining together many pieces, including bringing in the crypto component, some ancient English philosophy, wherever else you may be drawing knowledge and inspiration. To put it simply, this is my own conclusion from looking at crypto and from looking at the state of climate. And I tend to look at the state of climate probably more cynically than most of the climate people would look at the state of climate. There's a theory behind carbon credits, and then there's a reality behind what the actual intentions are for the companies trying to offset the companies that are running projects, if they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart, or if they're doing it to have better PR, if they're doing it to fit better with the bottom line, go on, so on and so forth. That, that whole discussion is a very kind of gnarly discussion that's based a lot off of speculation of intention. The high level point that I take away from this is that for whatever reason, there is now a big, meaning over billion dollar movement, over billion dollars of interest in moving towards, for some reason, paying money to buy the abstraction of carbon from somewhere and then metaphorically or analogously offsetting that abstracted carbon. If you look at, if you look at that kind of heuristic in, the, in, like, in just decades past, fucking crazy, right? Like all of a sudden people are like, yeah, we're going to buy abstracted carbon up and then we're going to offset this abstracted carbon for whatever purpose we feel fit for what, for something, some reason, if it's a government anywhere. But the root of that, what's the root of that? The root of that is 
our relationship with nature has, is off. Our relationship with our environment is not right. And this is the first time now where we're seeing, oh, we need to do something to try to restructure that. And so we're going to go for this. Okay, that's what we mean when the clown is out of the box. The world has finally said, yeah, you can pay an offset abstracted carbon and that's a legitimate thing to do and that has to be done. Okay, that's a first shot in a war. We'll run that all the way down by extension what the implications of it is and we're on our way to basically remaking our entire relationship with nature. That's, kind of, I think, the root of it. We're missing the final link. It's how I see it. Because if I were to use a really simple, stupid analogy, it's like me paying to offset my calories. Hey, I'm going to eat four and a half thousand calories tonight watching Netflix. I'm going to pay some young 18-year-old to go and run tomorrow and lift some weights. While you can do it, and it can have some intellectual effect if you just want to keep damaging your body by eating a ton of crap food. There is a missing link between the calories of body A and body B. And I think that's where a lot of the skepticism of the carbon credits come in. Like in Australia, I saw so many people saying, A, this is a great business. We don't give a shit whether it works or not. We're just getting in. Or B, this is our license to pollute. We'll pay. It's actually cheap. The price per credit, they say it's cheap compared to what they're doing to the environment. That's a way to get off from what they're doing. So I find that once you introduce that final link where the entire world is connected and now you're able to actually more accurately balance the forces, create value, the incentives, we'll be diving into it more clearly, but just to create that very initial framework of it all has to come together in a way where it hasn't up until now. Mm -hmm. And it may be disguised as a new financial opportunity, as a new technology, as a new political movement. But in reality, as any good proper system, it's all combined. People may be able to play with it in whichever realm they're interested in. The key thing is, can you place all the primitives together for it to start to function as a system? I don't know if you have any more sophisticated examples, such as, I don't know, like a global financial system, like people must be able to transact really or free convertibility. There's probably a lot of parallels with other systems that maybe seem to be global in nature. The one thing I would add to what you just said is that in order for this to work, it's going to be going on chain. And what I mean by that is in order to actually be able to get the abstracted value of nature, so the process of sucking up a state of reality and then issuing some type of token or unit or representation of that state of reality, and then to be able to take that issued state of reality and connecting it with another financial system or another form of value you need the internet of value to do that. I don't see any other scalable, sustainable, uncorruptible, reliable system that people can dig on that does not rely on a decentralized distributed ledger for setting the rules and frameworks of this type of process. And that's why up until this point, it's totally new. It's a new frontier for for this opportunity. This is super important because even if you were to talk to people that perhaps would already agree or be a supporter of the carbon credits movement, that's wide as you may want to define that, they may ask questions like, why does it need to be unchained? My government is already doing something in their servers. Could you run us through a couple of examples on the need to establish that worldwide trust and how things may go awry if the trust is corrupted? There's a lot of parallels between carbon and money. So when we look at OFP, 
and the potential of creating sound carbon, or for that matter, I think from a, from our conversation, sound any type of natural asset, right? Sound biodiversity credit, sound proof of purity of rivers and waters, et cetera. You're always just facing a dichotomy between in the existing system, it's gatekept in some manner. In that sense, it's a black box in some manner. And in that sense, there's not this inherent native visibility into what's going into these assets that are being generated. For money, it's less difficult because for money, it's fungible insofar as you could say, oh, the Fed just decided to print more money. And that's the kind of black box behavior that would not be the case on chain where you would have to have some voting mechanisms or some type of issuance schedule. But for carbon, so much of what the world has decided qualifies as carbon is not necessarily intuitive. It requires a fair look at the data in order to value it. You have to look at where it comes from. It's not as carte blanche as just saying, oh, we issued another dollar. So in your existing system, there's two kind of issues, I would say, with the legacy system. The first is the opacity of what's being created. And what that means is like, in theory, everyone does their job and everyone's a super ethical, honest actor and everything's only done correctly in theory. In practice, if someone deviates, what you have to ask is who can see if there's a deviation? And what's the incentive structure in line with the deviation? And today for carbon, what's happening is the project financiers, the people who are starting the project and generating the credits in the first place are the ones paying the verifiers to come in and to create the credits. So already you have a, a mechanism, asymmetry between the incentives. In order for the credit verifiers to make money, they want to verify a project. In order for a project operator to get credits, they need to pay a project verifier. So it's this then by line of, can the verifier get away with verifying a project that is going to help them keep their reputation to be able to keep doing it? And can the project pay the verifier enough money to convince them to issue them the credits? That whole process, though, is completely opaque. Most to the general public at the time of and the kind of long-term question of what goes on from that. Then the upstream process of who ends up selling these credits and where these credits go is furtherly opaque. And because we're dealing with digital entries on a database or a spreadsheet, there's no proof that these credits have been offset. So where I could sell the credits to one party and the party could turn around and say, look, we offset them. Guess what? It's a database entry. So we can turn around and resell this database entry to someone else after having told another party that it's already been offset, right? It, it is, this is the kind of thing where like 30 years from now, people are going to look back and be like, I can't believe that system was ever even allowed to exist. I can't believe that we were okay with this level of just ridiculous design. And here's what I learned is the real reason why that's the case. Because people don't look, because people can't look, and because the companies in, involved in this aren't sharing. So it's a lot like the Twitter bot question, right? It's a lot like all of these open questions that you find, what's the real state of the company? What's the real cash flow of the company? What's the real users of the company? We don't know because we can't see and because they're not sharing. And if they're not sharing and we can't see, we just make an assumption in our mind and we're not losing sleep over it because there's no reason to lose sleep over it because it's closed up in silence. But that I think gets to the beginning of the problem with the legacy system and how we're moving towards a fully transparent, fully data backed, on-chain generated, on-chain offset credit, which is a credit. It's still not great, it's a credit, but it's a beginning. What I really like, what I really appreciate, what I wish more people could do, is having that first principles approach. Since I met you, I know that you're very passionate about the environment, perhaps more so than others. But if you were mainstream, if you were a normie, if you were an NPC, that would mean that you would basically just subscribe blindly to whatever green movement there is. 
And I like that as someone that supports a movement, you also have the intellectual honesty to say, this is a fucking scam. This is being led by politicians. This is being led by corporations. This is being led by people that have absolutely zero interest in the environment. And they're just making as much money as they can before it gets called out. And we've seen this with every industry. That's why I'm a very strong supporter as well of the decentralized science movement. Yep. If we knew who is funding the research, if the raw data from research was made available, if the peer review was truly open source, like anyone can review it. These are like things that have been embedded so deeply in our society that we basically have to unlearn. And I think that's where the paradigm shift is. We have to understand that with blockchain, we do have a way of collecting data and of sharing it in ways that are trustworthy so that I guess the onus is now on people and it's not going to be everyone. This is not mass adoption level, but I do think it is certainly possible to get just enough tiers of people who care and who have the ability to assess the data to vouch for it. Maybe it's an independent university in each country. Maybe it's whatever the case may be. It's about the data availability and creating real trust. Yeah, re real trust real accessible imbued trust built into the fabric of the system the, the system should show itself to everyone at any point in time it should never be inward looking and hiding things and to your point i want to share this is a deck that we use internally to talk about things in the state of things and why forests or how forests are being lost and how they're being lost but this should be the biggest wake-up call to any environmentalist out there right it's like you're looking at our relationship with nature and to be fair Nice. There's some drops in some good ways, but for the net loss of what's been going on for the last 20 years relative to the net gain, any no person can look at this and say, all of our systems work great. We're very happy with the state of how we're interacting with nature and we don't have to innovate whatsoever and we'll be fine. Like this should be your code red of saying something is not aligned. There's a massive asymmetry. Even if we have a solution for this massive asymmetry, the solutions state are not scalable and we need to be start looking, we need to start looking for more scalable solutions to this asymmetry if we care about our nature in the first place. So for right. the people that are just listening to this, can you put it up again so that we can describe yeah. it? Yeah, go ahead. Well, looking at an infographic that has the decadal losses in global forest over the last three centuries, it's very much flat. From the 1700s onwards, there's a bit of a increase in loss. What would that be? The 1800, 1860. And then as we enter the 1920s, there is an exponential increase with it peaking around the 80s. And even though it seems like the loss have diminished as we go into the 2000s, I'm guessing that the aggregate loss over the last century, it's, it's deeply troubling. I'm sure there's more data on this chart that I'm missing, but is the thing you want to add, Mike? That's the high level. And then if you want to go into the breakdown of what's causing these losses, this is the interesting peak as well. The majority of the losses are human-derived activity, which should read, aka, human-incentivized activity. And that activity is logging, agriculture, mining, urbanization, or some other form of agriculture. Only 23% has been estimated to have been lost from wildfires. And interestingly, that's in mainly North America, Russia, China, and South Asia, which is not where the bulk of our carbon, biodiversity-rich, extremely old and light-filled forest sinks are. Those tend to be in South America and Africa pre predominantly. 
So that's, I think, the fascinating thing about this. It's like we see there's a big problem and we see that the problem is largely human cause on a very, very economic level. So we've established a problem as far as something needs to be done in the environment. We've also established a problem with the existing way of doing things for carbon credits and the need for blockchain. Now let's start diving deep into the thesis that we opened with, because I'm truly fascinated by identifying carbon as that missing link. And as that essentially becoming a unit of account to bring back nature into balance, essentially. So if you want, I don't know if you have it handy. I've got here the prompts or mm-hmm. each section. Carbon credits are the start of a conversation of the value of nature and as an extension, the nature of value. Boom. Blow us away, Mike. I think it's self-explanatory in that sense. The moment that we start to say, oh, this credit, because it's from this region, because it sequesters this much carbon, because it has this co-benefit, but because it was issued recently, yada, that's an entangled web of values that is 100% built upon nothing other than our conceptualization of nature. And once we realize that door has been opened, once we realize that, oh, value now applies to our high-level conceptual abstractions of nature, we now are trying to value something we have not been trying to value before. And I think crypto, you could substitute and say, it's a nice wordplay, right? Trying to figure out how to value nature is changing the nature of value. You can say trying to find out how to value time is changing the nature of value. You can substitute that in many, there's many things that are changing the nature of value. And that's the crypto part of the thesis. But for our context of the environment, now that we're looking and we're saying, how much are a pack of elephants worth to keep roaming free and doing their thing in the Congo Basin? How much are clean rivers worth? to be able to provide fresh water to millions of people? How much are driving ecosystems worth in order to provide the necessary structure for the hydrological cycle to operate so that it doesn't desertify a certain city? Now that we've started this conversation, it's like a faucet's been popped into the massive paradigm of value and we're starting to out what has been value and now we're really fundamentally reimagining what does qualify as value? What should we really think value? And is it money issued by a nation state as it's been for the last four or five, 600 years, arbitrarily set for some type of human-centric system? Or are we ready to take a leap up higher and say, let's actually try to organize our value systems in line with our vital systems, in line with what keeps us alive, in line with what keeps us happy, so on and so forth. And now we can start thinking about composing it. So it's not intuitive yet, but I think If you look at what crypto is doing to the world, especially in your capacity for things like non-transferable representations of things, right? Like time-based skills or your reputation in community. We now have the digital capacity to abstract and quantify something that previously we've never been able to do before. And with that capacity, we're fundamentally seeing through existing value systems like a knife sliced through butter. And we're saying, we... things are about to change drastically. And then the nature thesis from this is to say, if things are going to change drastically, why not consider changing things in such a way where the very basis of all of our life systems is used as the foundation for this new system of value? And you can think of this in a million different ways. This is hopefully something that people way smarter than I am, way more interested in this problem, spend a lot more time jingling with. But you could imagine a Federal Reserve or 
a monetary supply policy that issues or deflates value based off of the updated state of the quality and preservation of value. So as the logic would go, the more flourishing and the more vital your nature feeds are into your monetary system, the more value you have to expose and the more value you're able to basically push out into the system, as opposed to the more destructive and decadent your nature systems would be, the more deflationary and the less value you would be able to issue because you would need to restructure it. This is super high level, but I think for the first time, this is where we're going. What people need to realize, final point on this before I'll pause, like, we're not going back. This is the biggest thing that you see all the time. You see this with the internet. Oh, the good old days for the internet. Guess what? We're not going back. Kids are going to have iPads pretty much indefinitely. You see this with AI. Oh, what's going to happen to universities? What's going to happen to schools? What's going to happen to students? We're not going back. It's only going forward. You see this with synthetic biology, CRISPR gene engineering. It used to be nice before we could make spicy tomatoes and psychedelic mushrooms like in a lab. Guess what? We're not going back. This is also a new trend in our future. And in the similar vein, now we have distributed systems of money. We have distributed systems of ownership. We have digital living in a metaverse to some degree. We're not going back. So the older generation is sitting here thinking, oh, this is a lot of fun. This is really cool. This is hip. And the younger generation needs to take a deep breath and really realize for a second that the product stack and the innovation stack you see in front of you is only going to exponentially roll out in the future and only going to change the world more drastically in the future. And those are the cars that we're dealing with that we need to focus on. That has not been priced in the minds of 90% of investors, builders, people living today. They're still living backwards looking, thinking that we're going to, that we're just tapping into this new digital era. The days of your bowling club and your non-digital existence are still something to hold on to. Things have changed forever and they're only going to change more forever. Wow. I don't think I'm ready for this conversation. I'm scared. Not kidding. There was one thing that really came to mind when I was reading the thesis. And now there's a second thing that just clicked in my head as you mentioned it. So I'll start in order. The first thing that clicked is, this is not a foreign concept. It seems to me like trying to tie the monetary value, the actual core of our monetary value system, as recently as the 70s, was already tied to nature. It was gold. We tried to have a common denominator rare metal, they, I'm sure, had some parameters to justify, oh, there's only so much of it and anyone can find it. It naturally ignored some shortfalls like gold doesn't really do anything. It's hard to transport. It's actually not found anywhere. Hence, it benefits some countries more than others. But I think that ultimately, it could all be summed up as it is missing the link. It didn't bring things into equation. It was actually a clusterfuck. Bretton Woods agreement, gold is out the window. And I know that some Bitcoin maxes still like to store gold, I don't know, in their backyard. In silver. Yep, gold and silver. Gold and silver are not going to lose their place as stores of value. But if we were to contrast that with some of the concepts that we're starting to introduce around carbon and carbon credits, and to be clear, we may be at odds here, we can agree to disagree. I don't think that carbon credits are going to be like the basis of the economy. I don't think they're going to replace it yet anytime soon. Well, you can see how as an asset class and as an equalizing force, it's massive. The second thing that you men mentioned and made it click for me was the metaverse. Carbon could potentially be a very big force towards having a larger break 
in between the physical world and the human experiences. In the same way that most humans now tend to aggregate around cities and we have infrastructure for cities, high density living, a lot of people may argue, it's actually much more efficient in terms of use of resources. So you may have whatever, Sao Paulo, 20 million people, and then you have the Amazon, as opposed to spreading 20 million people with big houses. I'm wondering how a carbon system could potentially actually create a lot of incentives to provide people a higher quality of living with a lower carbon footprint because they're doing everything on the metaverse. Oh my God, I need some mushrooms for this conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Before we get into this, I want to double click on, and I'm, I'm not going to say the investment value, but the long-term value accrual of a system like this, right? So the double click here is basically to say, we are talking about a system overhaul for how we're looking at value. And the way that you're looking at this in the future has less to do with what's the individual nature of the product and what's the individual nature of the product versus is the product part of the old system or is the product part of the new system? It's a lot like saying we're investing in e-commerce or we're investing in an expedited form of selling commerce off of the internet, but using trucks and using flyers and using newspaper ads, right? People also need to price that in. When we're talking about this on-chain future and this on-chain system, we're playing a different ball game with value. And the proposition for people looking at this and listening to this right now in 2023 is just like when Bitcoin came out 12 years ago and you had the opportunity to get in on this new value system and participate on what they refer to as digital gold, sound money, uncontrolled, free nation state, free money. Or when Ethereum comes out, you have the ability to get in on the ground level of the world's first Turing complete smart contract platform where you can program dApps into it. It's taking time for the value to accrue. This is a similar approach of what we're doing with OFP. We're launching a system that if mechanistically designed properly is going to be accruing value from that narrative that we've talked about, from that traditional to new world value creation system over the next 50 to 100 years. So it's a big wave in type of investment. We're not talking about a fashion company that's coming up with a new way of recycling their clothing, right? We're talking about a massively ambitious system overhaul that is by its nature distributed, network-based, and collaborative, and it's going to basically be the core pillars of a regenerative economy, of generating value from nature based on the way that the system has been designed, how the system works. That's the first part. The second part is what you just said. What can we do with that? Absolute wet things. Like you could imagine a game developer imbuing real carbon credits into loot boxes in their games, such that players who are running around killing monsters are being rewarded with an asset or an item that actually holds value, not just outside of the game, but for real implications of the world. You could, on the flip side of that, build a game where value in the game that is lost is put into a pool that is contracted with a real world project on the ground and that finances the future reforestation of that project. We're not even there yet. That's what the younger generation is going to be going to town on and doing all these crazy, cool, creative things around how can we compose value systems, how can we unlock value systems. We're in that early stages of just building and rolling out the system and saying to people, imagine being able to can abstractly digitize the value of nature on chain. 
And then that's your foundation. Then you can decide what you want to do with it. If you want to intermingle it with a game, if you want to financialize it as a financial Lego, if you want to use it as a backstop to an entirely new system, cool. That's what's coming. Now we're having the question of what can we digitize and value on chain? And it's not just carbon. Biodiversity credits are going to be huge. Probably some form of quality measurement is going to be huge. There's a whole ongoing discussion. It's only starting of what can we reliably digitize, abstract, and value from the world to usher in this new era of incentives and this new dialogue on the nature of value. Fascinating. I think that we've been jumping all over the place. So feel free to lightly touch on some of these points. The next one on the thesis refers to the benign corporations. Oh, yeah. This is, so I think if I remember this point effectively. So the credit system, like this is our, the demons of our time is like no one thinks long term, right? So everyone just thinks short term and they just think like short to maximum medium term. But even the whole logic of carbon itself is not like... Basically, the way that you can imagine is run the system through as effectively and perfectly as possible and look at what the end result of that would be. What would the end result be if every single corporation dropped their carbon footprint and every single corporation offset to the point where they were all carbon neutral and they offset the offset and we get a carbon neutral world? What would be the incentive for the corporation to continue to purchase and continue to offset their footprint? after they're already carbon negative and they're already aligned. There wouldn't be. So the way to think about it is it's like, we're using carbon credits as a drawdown tool. Let's draw them down to this root level. But in the best case scenario, when we're even drawn down to to parity and when we've saved our world and when we're at less than 1.5 degrees Celsius, what stops the next day a rancher from saying, oh, Now that you've drawn yourself down, let me burn this forest down and plant a new layer of vegetation or a new soybean farm because it's going to make me money and you don't need to pay to to offset anymore because you're already at zero. And then the system would naturally go back out of equilibrium and it's this kind of mad dash of, okay, how durable is it to think that in 100 years, in 70, 80 years, corporates are just going to keep buying credits as their way of trying to make their contribution to nature, if that makes sense. And I think the way that it would go is realistically what would happen, because this thing, these forest projects, they reach a peak where they're no longer sequestering as much carbon as they might've been before. So you're not sequestering the same amount of carbon in year 50 of your forest project than you are in year 12 or eight, because the trees have grown and they've in the heating capacity, quote unquote. Then they're structuring ecosystem services, biodiversity services, so on and so forth. The question is, do you reach a point where you start to say, it's not even about the value of the carbon anymore. It's about preserving the underlying longevity of this asset, of this want of nature that we're looking at. And that's where you would want to offload from a reforestation project to a conservation project or a type of biodiversity preservation or ecosystem management project. What's the unit of value for that? Are we expecting the world to just benignly pay to preserve indefinitely in the future to keep these things in the ground? Again, that's like old system thinking. New system thinking is we're going we're gonna to create a way for these plots to have value on their own and to stand up on their own in this new financial system. And that's probably going to take 20 or 30 years to get. It is increasingly clear to me that not only does it take a different type of thinking, 
and to really value carbon in a different way. But it is almost a pre-requirement to be able to see carbon in that way, to have the new technology. And I guess this is why having this conversation is so important because you could almost argue that, yeah, blockchain, Web3, PFPs, WAGME, but understanding and awareness of what the technology can achieve unblocks the next level of thinking. And I don't know if this is a wild off the park comparison, maybe it says more about my life, trauma and lived experiences, but as you were talking, I was thinking the old model, or I guess the current model of trying to just bring everyone down to 0% seems more like a socialistic, communistic vibe. It's aspirational. You want everyone to do better, but by virtue of bringing everyone down to a predetermined point that you assessed today, you're basically capping progress and leaving a lot of value on the table and basically, yeah, cutting people short. But this model, I think, is potentially a value adding or I guess capitalistic in nature, carbonalistic. It's about creating or unlocking new sources of value that not only could it potentially have value on its own, but then unleash a whole bunch of incentives to also generate a lot of value, like further down the line, think new ways of commerce, new ways of tourism, new ways of sex in the metaverse. I don't know. Am I like wildly off track here or does that make sense? No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think what is also interesting is the difference between and to, to, to your analogy of one is forcing down an old system and the other is changing the rules of the game for a new system to flourish in such a way. When you're forcing down an existing system, you're trying to preserve the way that things are while trying to get it to accommodate a change in what's happening outside the world. And what's happening in that dynamic is you, what you're really doing is not listening to what's happening outside of the world. Let's just be very honest. The outside world, the state of our external environment has proven essentially the failure of the existing system as it stands. And any coercion and any type of forcefulness towards trying to safeguard the existing system by simply changing who can do what is destined to not succeed. I think that's a very fair point, to be honest. It's probably one of the few cases where paradigm shift actually applies. You have to fundamentally. And so this is the other really big point that we need to just, we need to keep a record of. So we need to do is like all these people who are like, oh, crypto's a meme. It's a dumpster fire. There's no value there. It's all Ponzi. It's all just whatever. It's like, okay, look at, I get it's a new industry. I get it's emergent. I get you don't really understand what it is. But when this comes out and when this revolutionizes how these old systems work, you are going to lose all credibility as a thoughtful leader or analyst for the world today because you did not understand crypto. And you could only get a cursory artificial understanding of what was actually going on. That's so many people, so many investors. It's so many. It's still the predominant dialogue trend. Predominant de facto state of crypto side tangent is LARP. That's predominant LARP. Live action role play. Pretend you understand. Pretend you have an idea of what's going on. That's the predominant one. Very few people can actually start to put together on a fundamental level how moving from aggregated, siloed forms of value to distributed and system-imbued forms of value is going to create better systems. That's the big catch here. It is fundamentally better 
to have on-chain carbon, offset on-chain, created on-chain, fully transparent, imbued into the core logic of the protocol, then trusting 15 different counterparties to all maintain their books and keep track of all of this off-chain where anything could be audited and malicious at any point in time. I don't think anyone is going to win that argument. I don't think there's any way to say the opposite. I, don't, I think it's quite self-evident. And one of the biggest blockers in ushering in this paradigm shift is people realizing that. And sadly, if I'm being honest, the older generation has completely shit the bed in their ability to keep track of what's going on in the world and direct and understand the new workings of how this world is changing in such a drastic way. Yeah, this is definitely a tangent, but I think it's one worth exploring. I always try to take all sides of the argument. I understand that the world is made of builders and consumers, and it is not everyone's role to understand real estate technology. I'm sure that people across space and time have had frustration about people getting it before it exists. Perhaps what's unique about our time is that we're on the mainstream. And I do take ownership of the other fucking savages that claim to work in crypto alongside me because it has been a shit show. Whether you stole 10 billion or you sold 10,000 PFPs, it's a shit show. And even though we did run the first PFP in near, and I'm proud of it, and we never made any claims as to financial gains and shit, I've always said very openly, I am not interested in doing, you know, same, same, different what you could do in the real world digitally. I'm yes. just not that interested in trading cards. I'm interested in changing systems. I said recently in the nearest now group, I want to challenge financial systems. I want to challenge scientific records and stuff. So I think what we need is, or what could be useful for us would be to perhaps have less of a prominence on the center stage. And for people to take a step back and actually build and have these conversations. But we'll yeah. probably touch on it. We can go into it now. But I recall very clearly from our last conversation that it was a conversation with Peter, the founder of Flux, yeah. that really made it click for you and realized that the open forest protocol could go beyond being just a product and to be a protocol. I'd really love to explore, and you do touch on it on the thesis, that change of relationship between something being binary and something being systemic. And why open forest protocol, it's not just a product that does carbon credits, but it is actually at a systematic level. And we can start touching on what OFP is doing now, but also how other parties could potentially plug in. 100%. So let me break down on the protocol layer, how we envision this growing to mind-boggling degrees over the next 10 to 20 years. There's three fundamental pieces of the protocol that create a fluid and dynamic system for issuing value for nature. First piece, the plot of nature that you are collecting data from, measuring and reporting. It's on OFP, it's a non-transport NFT. You can imagine, you can set that plot for anything in nature. In the future, you'll be able to set that plot for anything that you have in mind, capturable from the real world that you're going to be measuring and reporting. And I'll get to the end to talk about how different logics can be integrated into the protocol to align what specifically needs to be measured and reported and collected from that plot to then participate in the system as a whole. So step one, the plot of nature that you're looking at. For now, it's a reforestation, afforestation project. In the next two years, it'll be an improved forest management, agroforestry, biodiversity project. After that, it could be a blue carbon project, it could be a freshwater river, it could be an urban regenerative project, you name it, the options are quite high for 
what from the physical world are you creating a non-stressful NFT for going, ching, this is what we're going to be collecting data on over an extended period of time. And this is how we're going to be collecting that data. That's the first facet of the protocol. The second layer of the protocol is the validation layer, where you are essentially sending that data up to a decentralized network of validators. And then this decentralized network of validators with sufficient time frame is able to collectively oscillate between the different data uploads, verifying or denying their accuracy or their legitimacy. I just had a conversation actually the other day with, with someone else and he put it very clearly. It's okay, so basically what you're doing is your ZK, to some degree, your ZK proofing the state of the nature. What do we mean by that? We're not looking to see if it's right. We're looking to see if it's erroneous. And what do we mean when we're, we say we're looking to see if it's erroneous? We're checking the state of nature from its ground state compared to the next and the ongoing uploads of that ground state over time. So the validator's job is actually pretty straightforward. It's simply saying, you have taken the state of this ground state, you've written it in Sharpie on chain, you've immutably hashed it on chain, and now our job with the skulls we have is to determine if there is any error or any major defect with your Sharpie data reporting that you've uploaded. And that's used for our basis of either approving or denying. And at scale, it should become quite automated and simple to see which projects are accurate and which projects are inaccurate. Why is that? Because your bandwidth, your variability in nature is not arbitrary. So it's not like a tree grows 20 times larger in one six-month time frame than does another five-month time frame. You're locked in because you basically have an immutable system and a set system, meaning nature. So your natural growing system is being reflected onto your immutable system. The project is doing the reflection there and the validators are just checking to make sure it's consistent. That's the logic of validation in a nutshell. Just for the views and virality, are you trying to tell me that if you have the data of tens of thousands of things gathering data over a process where you want to know people's opinion on something, and at a specific time in a specific location, something is completely off the charts statistically in a way that has no correlation with anything that has happened before that may be fraudulent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, and I think, and then this, the crazy thing, this system is built such that even there is time to debate that fraudulent claim. So even if it's not super crystal clear, there's challenge periods, there's escalation periods. And then more interestingly, let's say that by some fluke, you mess up and you incorrectly validate a wrong project, guess what? They're uploading another data upload the next year in line with their data upload, and it's coming back for them right then and there, and you're going to get them in that next year because you messed up. We need to stop thinking short-term and immediate. We need to start thinking long-term and process-driven, and that's especially with our natural assets that take time to grow that are relatively consistent in how they operate. You know, we're not talking about a, a refrigeration truck moving between point A and point B randomly with different times and different conditions all the time. We're talking about a very stable asset that we're just consistently checking in on. And that's the premise of validation. So that's the second piece of the protocol layer, right? You have your data collection, you have your validation layer. And then the fun and creative part is you have the value creation layer. So what you can do mechanistically, and this is where the real revolution comes in, is once you have a decentralized network, say, 
this data is acceptable according to this decentralized network. We agree. Then you can have that call a separate token contract or a separate designed thing of your choosing to mint or create a new form of value representative of that abstracted natural state that's been validated. So this is like the very, very boring, slow, shitty, clunky, like logical pathway for digitizing a value imbued representation of nature. And on a protocol level, what's the power of this? There's 2.1 billion hectares of natural land, natural assets in the world. And once the protocol is live and flourishing, anyone is at liberty to jank with and play with that process in deciding what is being collected and what value is being issued on the tail end of the protocol. So you can bring your own mangrove protocol and say, hey, I have a mangrove protocol that's based on this specific methodology. You have to collect this data with this app or with this service. We're plugging it into the core OFP validation network. And then we're going to issue our, a separate carbon credit from this or a separate mangrove credit or you name whatever from it on the third layer of the protocol that can then be monetized in some way. The real challenge here is not the tech. It's not the theory. It's not the creative possibilities and the magical possibilities. The real challenge is getting the human family to start having this conversation and realizing, whoa, this has value. We should participate in this system. That's frankly like to some degree what you, any of these emergent nascent systems, Bitcoin, Ethereum, smart contract development, whatever. So it's like the problem, the technical solution is pretty simple in terms of it's not really that revolutionary in the context of crypto. The hard part is getting a whole horde of people to come in and populate this new system and start believing, yeah, this works. Yeah, we want to validate this. Yeah, we see this as a real representation of value that we can trade, offset, interact with. It's fitting the crypto world into the institutional mainstream normie world. It's just, it's smushing those two together in a way where it clicks. We're probably not going to get there until 2030. That's what I keep trying to tell people to pace themselves. It's like, we're dealing with nature. We're dealing with a massive system overhaul and we're dealing with potentially a lot of money. So people are going to be cautious, slow, and careful in their diligence and analysis of stepping into this new conversation. And we need to just be there to support them and be there to explain why an on-chain system is going to exponentially outperform any other type of system and wait for it. But that's your original question on the protocol layer. That's the vision that you can connect and monetize and value imbue any type of natural asset that you have the framework and the business model to offer. It could be tagged elephants. It could be coral double checking. It could be air DNA sequencing of that represents the species of a certain area using air DNA, like you name it your liberty to, to be able to value imbue these processes. Michael, you are a man of history, a man of philosophy. I'm wondering, A, whether there have been similar points in time in history when the technology got way ahead of people's understanding of it and it was the actual social norms or acceptance that were holding back progress. I don't know, top of mind, I'm thinking maybe the Industrial Revolution and there was a bit of resistance there from people. And I'm just really curious on whether there were any lessons from the past yeah. we may be able to use. 100%. So sadly, the, sadly for us and what the historical record is showing, 
is in this dialogue of the first industrial revolution, often also now more commonly called the great enrichment. There's so many different theories about what was the catalyst for the great enrichment, what was the trigger that actually led to this exponential takeoff of these modern economies, standards of living, life expectancies, innovation in general. And by and large, most of the debate has centered around this notion of basically an increase in human sociality, an increase in collective creativity an increase in dialogue, conversation, and collaboration. I actually did a Twitter thread on this, I think like a couple of weeks, months ago. And it was basically about how what Great Britain did differently than all the rest of the world and the rest of, of Europe was for a short period of time, one to two generations, they redefined the way money was connected to their identity. So they say they, they were able to outgrow the monetary self. They were more generous. They were more willing to share. They were more willing to engage in dialogue. They were more willing to collaborate on innovation. And this nexus of, and this refers to academics as well, right? They talk about like the school of letters, sending letters, sharing your innovations across Europe, not worrying about patenting something and just wanting to give it away to the world because you think it's so incredible and awesome. This was the kind of logic, Deidre McCloskey, I'd say the leading author on this, but Joel Mulkier, does not stray too far from this type of thesis as well. The leading logic of this was an uptick in sociality, conversation, generosity, and values was the basis for this incubated time period from which innovation just exploded across Great Britain and then trickled out into the rest of the world and set us on the current trajectories in which we're on. The sad thing is that today we're in a very different environment. And today we're actually, at least I would say the non-aligned countries, maybe you could say the BRICS are more attuned to this type of sociality and this type of kind of, of work collaboration structure than Europe and West. And maybe potentially even in the East. I don't know about the East. I haven't been to the East. But so the big, I think, takeaway for, for us here is this has happened before. It takes off exponentially when people embrace the signs of the times and they embrace the kind of, they can eclipse the monetary self and start looking at getting back to reality again, getting back to, to the real world and wanting to work in the real world. Another interesting way of putting this, actually, another like really, this is a jarring way of putting this, right? Is if I'm a VC, What's my ultimate goal in this investment? Is my ultimate goal to liquidate as soon as I unlock and just make a quick buck off of the product? Or is my ultimate goal to use my money, inject that money into something, participate in growing that something into a revenue generating long-term killer of our society, and then planning on making back the money that I put in over an extended period of time frame instead of a shorter period of time frame? And I can tell you. With high certainty, 98% of VCs today are the former and not the latter. 98% of VCs do not fundamentally give that many shits about whether 10, 20, 30 years from now, the projects they've invested in are good. So what does that tell you? It tells you that we are abstracted. We're focused in this world of we want number to go up and we want more money in our bank account. And if you want to catalyze innovation, if you want to catalyze real drastic changes in the state of our reality, you need to go away from, I want more money in my bank account to, I want more beautiful buildings in the world. 
I want more clean water in the world. I want more coffee shop atmosphere discussions in the world that are going to be used as the basis for creating stuff. That's a value element that's decided on an interpersonal social level of value. So for OFP, we're not really too happy with the world that we're building this in, I would say. I think a lot of times, to be honest, a lot of times you look and you're like, you look around and you're like, has the world lost its mind? Uh, Bonk can go exponential really quickly. A a lot of these like relatively clear Ponzi's can go exponential pretty quickly. And then when you're dealing with something that's trying to revolutionize something as real and important as old growth forest preservation or preserving the cutting down of the Amazon, it's not just that there's not a lot of support, it's that the support doesn't even have the lens to understand what's actually going on. And that's super disturbing, like for everybody. And not to be cynical, but that is a very big warning sign of where we are today, how we should look at this innovative cycle. I'll just say, no need to respond, no need for commentary, just for the records. I think maybe there was something to do with the UK sending everyone that dissented over to Australia as convicts. But anyway, let's, let's ignore that part. Uh, it's super interesting that you mentioned that. And I think that picking up on that last point, I have taken it upon myself to create content and communicate to the masses. I call this edutainment. It's not really your classic talking points and you show me how the smart contract works. We try to be fun. It's just your friends having a chat forever. That is the message that I think needs to reach the masses and it hasn't. And I actually wanted to introduce a point of, or the parallel that I think that Neo is actually having the exact same problem as OFP. Yeah. We have consented with the technology and now we're walking around in circles trying to crack how to get more people into the tent. To care, but uh, to see, to imagine, to believe in this future, to want to be a part of this future and to see this as something that they should be participating in and not just peeking from and going back to their maladroit realities. Maybe you can touch base on how Nier has transcended that technology the relationship between OFP and NEAR, if there's anything that we could do collaboratively, like one would fuel the other one. First off, last lesson of economic history is how long it took for the steam engine to actually become revenue profitable and implemented. It was about 30 to 45 years from when Watt originally created the first concepts of it. What that should inform us and say is we're playing a long game here. We're not expecting radical success in the coming months and in the coming years. We're expecting radical success in the coming decades. That's the first really big qualification. And then with that in mind, being patient and explaining the value proposition and growing the systems that we're doing over this extended period of time is probably our best way forward of getting this kind of snowball effect of it growing, growing, and more and more people jumping on. I don't think there's a quick way of jumpstarting a general purpose technology that's going to usher in a paradigm shift for the world. Because the whole premise of a general purpose technology ushering a paradigm shift is it requires the collective buy-in of the people around that to understand and integrate with it for it to really start to churn and move in a similar way to how the steam engine operated. Probably electricity to some degree on that front as well, if you want to do like your case study there. So like looking at what we're doing more as that steam engine, electricity, a 20 to 30 year program, it means we need to pace ourselves. It means we need to double down on the problem and our solution to the problem. And it means we need to start looking for really good allies who get it early on to help move this along as quickly as possible.
And I think this applies for near as well. I did a, I recently did a deep dive into really dynamic sharding and cross shard communication coupled with the account model. And it is nuts. It is incredible what that offers. And this is having been in near for who coming up on my third year now, third year of being full-time in the ecosystem. I'm only now having this aha moment in the macro of crypto of realizing what is going to be coming for near in the next five to 10 years. So it's a slow process. And I think what we need to do is we need to be patient. We need to enjoy the process and we need to be diligent towards trying to bring people into this space and trying to start these conversations. Controversially or not, we'll see. But my hope is over the next three to four years, crypto stops being a meme coin, shit coin, Ponzi industry and starts becoming a real industry for new widgets of value creation. And I think OFP is a little more on the urgency side of the house because of our dire climate situation and because of the troubles that we're facing with our climate. I think that's well said. I've had very similar experiences. In fact, sometimes I laugh and I try to reflect, what is it that attracted me about near and hooked me? And I've been 24 seven since the early days because we literally only had Berry Club. The wallets couldn't even transfer tokens. Like the first version of Ruth, I'm sorry, Ilya, but it made me want to vomit. Like it was so bad, the user experience. And with every new partnership, every new launch, every new iteration of the technology, like they keep layering things onto it that really just keep, there's a multiplier of possibility and power. Mm -hmm. And we do see the needs, like I currently sit on the marketing DAO and we're getting better at projecting what we need from content. Also getting better at saying no to things like, hey, if you're creating the same content you were creating one year ago, 18 months ago, that's not good enough. Where are the people creating content that capture Nier's true potential? We've got fucking $500 million to grow this. It's not a money issue. It's a quality yeah. issue. Who put in hundreds of hours of their own fucking time understanding the real potential of this and then using their creative output to conveying it in a way that reaches a new audience. That's what we want. I'm yeah. sick of these people that come to the post, first time they post, they've been on here for about four and a half hours. Sure, they have technical skills. We encourage them to collaborate with the people that have been here for a long amount of time. But there needs to be a depth of knowledge and understanding to really be able to convey in simple terms. Like I always say, like for every one hour of podcast, people may not believe this, but there's at least three or four or five digging into the person or the project or whatever the case may be. Yeah. So yeah, we keep coming back to it. Like what is OFP's approach to getting partners on the forest side? What is OFP's approach to getting partners on the technology side? Has been on near being a detriment and advantage? I know that some projects have had to simultaneously sell near as much as their projects on the trying to procure investments. Like it's a multi-tier beast that I'm just really curious to see what the state of affairs is now, especially because looking at the OFP website and all the documentation, the progress is unreal. I mean, from something that seems like crazy people with face masks, you know, the ones that you wear when you go to rob someone, from that to the protocol, everything that I see today as a massive improvement. So I'm really curious to see how you guys go about everything. We started building on Near in December of 2020. 
we started the first kind of digging in here. And at the time, everyone was like, no, we should build on ETH. ETH is definitely the way to go. And the way that I saw it from the outset was it's going to take five to seven years to build OFP to where you want to build it. It's probably going to take near five to seven years to get where it really wants to get. Let's make a bet on the fundamental first principle design of Near as compared to the problems we know of Ethereum, the composability issues we know come from rollups, so on and so forth. And let's make a bet and let's just, let's build this on Near. At the early stage, there was a little bit of need to work with Near for certain token standard discussions and certain things like that because it was still super, super early. Since then, it's been largely a good example of parallel ship sailing together. We have our product roadmap that we need to build and Near is executing on their vision of sharding and scaling the network as best as they see fit. And for now, it's quite aligned. It's interesting that like a lot of times we forget what is the role or mission of Near and what we need from other extremely qualified teams to come in and create in the ecosystem separate from that role and mission of Near. And what I mean by that is it's like, I would have loved to have brought a GMX into the Near ecosystem. And that, that GMX does it, didn't a handout from Near in order to be successful. I would love to have brought the Uniswap similar. We have Ref, right? Sponsored by Proximity. Great. But I would have loved to have some of these other blue chip style projects coming over to the ecosystem and building autonomously and independently without requiring some type of constant support from near to some degree. Hopefully in the coming years, we're going to start to see more of that. But it's so early. Dude. This thing I emphasize, like near is two, like a little over two years old, right? In terms of its liveliness. That's ETH in 2017. What functioning DAP existed on ETH in 2017? Nothing. Like literally maybe nothing. Augur. Maybe Augur. It was getting fucking ransacked by Koyo on repeat during this time. And everyone was like, oh, it's all fucked. Dude, I remember... My last year at university, it was actually a bit of a traumatizing experience because I thought I was ready to graduate. I did a, a double degree arts and law. And the arts faculty tells me that I need one more unit to complete the degree. I thought I had already finished it. I was only doing law units by then. So anyway, I enrolled in some bullshit, like the easiest unit I could find that would meet the criteria. And I remember crystal clear sitting on my lecture theater with my laptop on the Ethereum website, where there were only like two or three things to do, including issuing a fungible token. Yeah. It was like the contract, and it was really colorful and pretty. And the dude behind me saw it. And when we walked out of the lecture, he was like, hey, dude, you're into Ethereum and shit. And at the time, I was like, whoa, you're like the only art student that's going to make money. It was so early, and there was so little to do. But once again, it's the same reasoning as what caught me about near earlier on, because there was nothing. It was the excitement of being able to fulfill your curiosity and to know that you could always add a layer on top. It might not be there now, but if we keep going at it and enough minds keep joining, then you start to see progress. And I think that's going to happen yes. with Nier as well. 100%. Our, our objective right now as the whole is about recruiting talent with vision, capable of launching successful projects and populating the ecosystem with blue chips of the future that hopefully will be able to coalesce and run on their own. We, for OFP specifically, I set this goal. OFP realistically could be the largest nature-based carbon supplier and qualified, the largest 
natural asset supplier beyond carbon in the entire world in seven years. I think realistically, the home of the largest on-chain carbon economy, nature-based carbon economy, is going to be through OFP in seven years if we execute properly with the system design that we have in place. That's our vision. I would love to have five other projects in the ecosystem with similar visions for their specific verticals. Seven years is perfect timing. I'm still going to be young enough to rock a dad body on my yas. Look, I've got a two-part question. We're still on serious mode. Yeah. The first one is, what would have to be true for you to accomplish that goal in seven years? And the second one is, what is the relationship between you to accomplish that mission? I would assume that the amount of value that the OFP would control would be significant. Do you guys currently have a validator? How do you see the relationship between the value that projects on top of Veneer create and the underlying layer? Yeah. The key route there is from a high level, there is what you would call the protocol fee that is built in to all value created on the protocol. So we talked about those three layers, the data collection layer, the validation layer, and the value issuance layer. The loop in the protocol is any type of value issuance pays the protocol fee to the token holders on the network that are basically locked, meaning staked on the network or staked to a validator on the network. And that fundamental design that fee rate can be adjusted. We set the fee at 8% to start. That means that out of 1,000 carbon credits that might be created, 80 of the 1,000 will be paid out to the protocol. As the protocol gains traction in Steam, you could increase that rate to up to 15 to 20%. So, so just to confirm, out to the, the state tokens. As you describe it, because sometimes when we use protocol or network, it gets confusing when you've got the near tier and the OFP tier both being taken. Oh, the near tier. Yeah, so this network. is just OFP tier. This is just OFP tier, not the near tier whatsoever. The near tier is just the, the transaction fees for what you're doing, which hopefully with things like meta transactions and uh, specific accounts that they're rolling out, will even be able to mitigate that as the third party DAP that pays for that, pays that for the user. What is the value to near of OFP? The value to near of OFP is endogenous ecosystem generated value in form of the large on-chain carbon market in crypto. All of the trading, ideally, all of the trading, all of the liquidity, all of the DeFi Legos, all of the composability that comes from this massive emergence of an on-chain native carbon market is going into other dApps and services and things on near that can proliferate in the future from this hoard of on-chain value exclusively there. So that's AMMs. That's order book DEXs that would be for centralized exchanges as well. The thing that people when you realize is it's going to be pulling money into the ecosystem. So when, if OFP is offering exclusively on near, not anywhere else in any other L1, if OFP is offering 70 million carbon credits a year for sale and swap, you're looking at average carbon credit price predicted to go between 10 to $20. You're looking for a pair for between 70 times 10, 700, 70 times 20, 1.4. We're looking at between 700 to 1.4 billion of interest incoming in to purchase this nascent emergent asset that only exists and is only generated on year. That's the power of what OFP can bring in here over the next 10 years. And 70 million credits a year is a small amount for the size that the market can grow to. 10 million institutions and corporates. 
And I'm going to put my normie hat to see if we can capture the flow for people to be able to see it. I get really excited by that endogenous value creation. If we look at the DeFi now, we'd have two categories. We've got near or basically any near native tokens that would presumably create value or grow in value. Think of the near token, ref finance, whatever. And then you've got money coming from other ecosystems in the form of stable coins, could be wrapped Ethereum, wrapped Bitcoin. There is a bit of a zero-sum game or perceived to be. That's why a lot of people are very sellers about the multi-chain world and bridges and just how flimsy capital can be. We've seen vampire attacks and all sorts of things. So the ability to create value is remarkable. And what's really interesting is that, and this links to my first question about what has to be true for this to succeed. I'm thinking on-chain, off-chain, Web 2 to Web 3 migration, Web 2.5 as he likes to refer to it. But think of the flow. Once the carbon is generated and somebody buys it, there is a transaction. But even if the dollar value goes off-chain, because whatever the person has a farm or the forest takes a dollar out, their carbon credit still has the same value. It is simply switching wallets or switching mm-hmm. places within the ecosystem. And that's why I asked the question, you guys could potentially be controlling billions of dollars worth of carbon credits, engaging with multinational corporations. Governments, yeah. We're looking at a total addressable market now that is several times the total market cap of the near yeah. ecosystem. So yeah. how do you see the relationship between near growing in tandem with OFP so that the core layer is always secure. And maybe we should provide some context here. My simple logic is proof of stake. If you have $3 billion worth of assets and the network is only worth $1 billion, with $300 million, I can take over and just cause a total chaos. You may not even be able to take the assets because you're fucking the network anyway, but People get very creative when they are evil. You can play as a short, you can do all sorts of things. Network security is at the core of everything. And that's something that I think very deeply with Metapool and the relationship with validators and all sorts of things along those lines. Thankfully for us, we will be growing in pace with the growth of Nier, hopefully. And what I mean by that is, is that we're pegged to the forest timeline. So our carbon issuance is going in these cycles of six months, six months, six months, six months, a year. And from there, we will probably need five to six years to get to what we would call industrial scale. The hope is by then, Nier is fully sharded, Nier is significantly decentralized, and Nier has sufficient value protection mechanisms to accommodate our growth at that point in time. That's what the bet has been. And... I wouldn't say Nier's behind right now, but I would say we're both waiting to see how this next cycle goes and how we how everything matures in the next three to four years to get to hopefully where we're where there is that equilibrium. Because if Nier slacks and we grow, that will be a real risk. And that will be something we'll have to be cognizant of and probably find a way of offloading the credits directly to another chain as opposed to directly on Nier so that when they're created, they're shipped off and the risk is mitigated to some degree. Something like that. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's why. I've always been a fan of projects having validators themselves. There are some benefits there around data availability and whatnot, but in general, contributing to the base layer, I think that you could even probably find a correlation between, hey, if I have a billion dollars on the blockchain, I should be contributing at least a million dollars worth of stake near skin in the game. Yep. Even though obviously there are some rewards and some incentives for validators, I think that 
there has to be buy-in yep. uh, at some point. But the other thing that I think is interesting, especially for me as a content creator, is that some of the cycles that we've seen is that usually the core layer tends to rally. Yeah, there could be a multiple three, four, five X ahead of the news or the expectation of the technology yeah. being built on it. Which yeah. is interesting because we've had some rants about the bonks of the world and some of the hype that they create. So then we enter into a world of, okay, how do we create responsible, well-informed, exciting content that makes people think, oh shit, these guys are going to put billions of dollars of carbon credits on chain. Maybe right now it's a great time to get in. Not financial advice. 100%. And this is what we would call like when the market finally, from a monetary perspective, OFP is positioned to be, and we'll say this safely, the world's first natural value yielding asset. So it doesn't necessarily mean carbon. It can be carbon, but it can be carbon. It can be biodiversity value. It can be your mangrove value. Any of that third layer value created that gets taken as a fee and pushed into OPN, it's your world's first natural value yielding asset. That means a corporate, knowing that they're going to have increasingly stringent compliance requirements in the future or pledges in the future, can simply buy the token and harvest their needed amounts without even having to look to the market because they're getting the fee directly from the protocol. And then the flip side of that is, is that as more total hectares lock, THL, comes onto the protocol, that is a market signal of more value that will be generated on the protocol. And the interesting thing here is that when your tokens are planted on the protocol to yield this value that's being created, they are not on them. So we basically, well, we basically have these squeezes that we can, that we will hopefully find an equilibrium and tap into where bringing more projects onto the protocol stimulates more token purchasing to lock up off the protocol, which stimulates market squeeze on the market side, increasing token price appreciation that when the value actually gets harvested and created falls in equilibrium. OFP is maybe the first asset in crypto where you could have an, a complete bear market and OPN would still hold its 40% APY, depending on how much carbon was on the market and depending on how, how many tokens were in circulation, how many people have bought the tokens and what the dynamics of that is. But the fundamental design, there's only designed to be around 60 million OPN tokens total. So that me, and that's over a 30 year time frame. So we have intentionally designed the crypto economy to basically play this gold to dollar kind of ratio where OPN is your gold and your carbon credit slash your natural value is your dollar and one is anchoring the other and it's always going to be less of one than the other. And then we wow. say, okay, market, tell us how big of a problem this is. Tell us how valuable you think natural value is and this system is going to undergird it and provide the basis for it. So we're still probably three or four years out from that becoming a reality, but that's what the design system is slated to be, where you can have a new event like we had in 2022 and OPNs just sitting tight and you're harvesting. Why? Because who's buying your carbon? Corporates, governments, people who don't give a shit about Bitcoin or Ethereum or things like that. That's fascinating. And I guess that with such long timelines, this is obviously a call to action for anyone listening. If you're interested in the tokenomic side, the technology side, the nature side, in fact, I would like to ask one quick question because we touched on it really lightly and then walk through the cycle of both projects that may be interested in joining. And I'll use myself as an example. And then the buyer side and how do you get buyers or how do you approach governments and stuff? 
question is, what is the current state of the technology? What are the tools available? Are they getting better? Is it expensive? Is it easy to operate by anyone around the world? For OFP. For the operators. Say, I'm going to open a massive so, farm so in Australia. Passing, yeah. So we have a video on this. Basically, the way we look at it is we say, okay, there's two plugins, your project plugin and your validator plugin. And our goal over the next five to 10 years is to exponentially improve the quality of data a project is able to report and the tools a validator has to look at that data. Today, it's very bare bones. It's mobile app, hand-collected data for projects that's going on chain in a routine basis. And for validators, it's we're actually doing it the opposite. We're only whitelisting validators that we know have the capacity to realistically look at this data that's coming on chain. So the goal is over the next five to six years, you expand out both of those boxes, such that projects have other forms of remote data checking what they've collected on the ground and validators have plugins from different satellites and different things ease their validation capacity. That's where we're going. So today, simple, the first validations actually start in like two weeks. But again, the first validations are six months apart for each one. If I'm a project, I validate once, I wait six months and I audit again, I wait six months because we're on tree timeframe, not on other timeframe. So for us, like OFP is a slow crank machinery that you're going to, that we're just now starting to crank. And thankfully that gives us time to get it where we want to. So that when we're cranking at velocity, everyone's locked in system can thrive optimally. To answer your second question for the carbon offloading, this is the nature of a product called auction house. And the design of this is very simple. And it's also a huge on-chain enhancement to the existing system, I should say. For most commodities in the world today, it's not a free-for-all between the commodity producer and the seller. There are what you would call an aggregator or people who would come in, purchase bulk, bulk versions of these commodities all in one, and then resell them on larger markets because they have the larger markets connected. This is normally done through what's known as a commodity auction. Happens all the time in Nebraska with ethanol. We've essentially built a similar product into the core fabric of OFP, where a project, before they upload their data, can toggle and say, I want you to auction my carbon for a minimum of this price after it's been created on the protocol. And then all of the projects, after their data is validated, have the carbon credit created, moved into the auction house, auctioned with a threshold price to the resellers and the people who are going to come in and buy it, and then the value of the auction is returned to the project itself in stable coins or in whatever unit of account that you would want to operate it. What's the value of this? We are aggregating our carbon market while we are building it. That doesn't exist in the existing system today. So in the existing system today, you're a project, you're trying to sell your credits, you're on your own to try to find someone to sell your credits, or you're trusting the validator to sell the credits for you and take a piece of it. So there's monopoly pressure there. 100%. OFP, one-click integration. All distributed projects pooling their credits to one auction interface where we whitelist the flow carbons of the world, the finances of the world, the market makers of the world of the future that want to stuck up these credits at a cheaper price and then resell them on their own platforms with arbitrage built. That's our offloading strategy. I think it's quite elegant and functional for what the market is looking for. Concentrated liquidity in that sense. That's fascinating. I think that we're probably going to have to have you on again between now and the next three to four years. There are some questions that I have around the regulatory side and collaborating with existing carbon credit operators, but it may be a bit early. 
in the meantime, because we are at one hour and 40 minutes, I have a sort of parenthesis, what we call a brainstorming session. The reason okay. why I asked about existing technology is because I recently visited my little cousins in Miami for Christmas, New Year's Eve. And because I am the coolest uncle, cousin, whatever, I was trying to find them a good present. I was going to give them Bitcoin. And then somebody said that would be almost as bad as giving them cold. I do think it was a bit harsh, but to be fair, the kids are a bit young. So what I ended up buying them was I went to the Arduino website. Arduino? It's like a Raspberry Pi equivalent. They basically create a bunch of computer chips and components. And it's like a hobby. Build your own computer. Now they have some really cool kits where you can have all sorts of projects. So I bought them a starter kit, which is for students ages 10 to 12. And they plug in the electric circuits and whatnot. They do some soldiering. And I also bought them a self-driving car. So they do the whole assembly of the vehicle and it has a camera and it breaks some tape. So you actually program the car to drive itself. Anyway, where I'm going with this is one thing that really caught my attention is that Arduino sells a weather kit so that you can actually have sensors in your house and then you program your little computers to basically, what's it called? That home automation. It can turn things on, off. It can just log temperature. It has some some sensors that go into the ground and measure humidity. It was fascinating to me that at that level of retail, hobbyist, super cheap tier, we already have a bunch of sensors that enable us to engage with our surroundings. I was thinking of ways that could potentially extrapolate to larger products, perhaps more powerful sensors. But the technology is relatively basic, like the input that you're seeking to capture is relatively simple. As I'm saying this, I'm thinking, do you think it would be a good idea? And feel free to say no. I'm, I know I'm talking out of my ass. Do you think it'd be a good idea to have some sort of a quasi-viral campaign, some sort of OFP baby edition early days where we actually bundle a bunch of these kits and we send them to people and we recreate the data collection cycle, but at a tiny scale, just for people to familiarize themselves with the data collection cycle and perhaps some of the technology, put the branding out there. We're talking about like extended time periods. So I'm wondering whether this could be something fun to engage people and also to get the basic concepts out there. Yeah, I think really that's where we're going to go. We need to hack more on what that looks like before we're actually, I don't think there's enough to send out to people right now to be able to say, give this a try. I think this is the basis of a number of very exciting hackathons where it's like, you can think of it like this, for, for example, they're building in certain capacities in your iPhone beyond geolocation to be able to map structures using AI, like mapping trees, estimating diameters of things like this. This is software combined with some degree of hardware, but the sensor capacity to do this is not absurd, right? So you could imagine someone building like a pole, a smart pole, a smart thing that you stick in the ground that has a range that can literally 3D map all of the trees in that sample plot at a given point in time and then send a signal from that 3D map to someone online or someone has to go out every couple of weeks to collect these signals that are collected and then put that on chain. But this is the level of where we're going to with this. Hacking on that nexus is going to be fire in the next two to three years between what you can do with open source satellites, what you can do with attached sensors, what you can do with 
mobile phones, where you can do with AI processing stuff. Like this is a great example of a validator idea. OFP at, in its early days requires all projects to take pictures of each of the trees in the sample plots that they're uploading data from. And these pictures are actually uploaded as well. So you're actually able to go in and manually see in the sample plot, picture of tree one, picture of tree two, with height, diameter, with whatever. So we're talking about potentially thousands of individual photos for each tree in an actor, or how big is the sample so, plot? Yeah, so the sample plot would, would depend on the size of the project. It would range between probably 10 to 20 trees per sample plot. So it's a larger lift up because if you have a big project, you'd have 100 sample plots. So you could have a big lift, but if it's a larger project, you're making a lot of money off of a larger project with 100 sample plots. I'll go right? out and take as many photos of as many trees as needed if I'm making money. <laughs> the interesting thing though about this is that you could imagine a validator that literally creates a custom AI. And the whole job of the AI is to look at the trees from past data uploads of the same sample plot and to compare the pictures of them with the new data uploads as a metric of double checking if the diameter estimate is accurate or not, or the reading is accurate or not of what they've said. That is a low hanging validator fruit that you could get. We'd load you up to be a validator and you could run it automatically. These are the kind of things in the future that we hope proliferate at massive scale for all these projects. Because I think they will. It's just probably going to take some time. But these validators have to be set up in specific locations. Like I can't validate that tree out a window. Like it has to be at a project site, like a forest in the software. No, no, no. So that's, the thing. that's the difference here. You as the validator are not going to the project site. You as the validator are going off of the data uploaded by the project and the past data uploaded by the project over time. And that's essentially the, the moat of the game that we're playing here. So you as a validator don't actually have to go anywhere because you are putting your perspective forward with the other 30 validators that are putting their perspective forward. And one of those other 30 validators is probably going to be in the region checking in physical what's actually going on, what the state is. Others will have remote satellites to be able to check up on things in real time. Others will have LIDAR services that are also going to be able to look at this. But the point from this is to say, instead of approaching validation as a, I can get my mouth around like the entire problem in one bite, look at validation as I can contribute my perspective to a collective that in the time frame that we're operating with, will be able to come to the right decision for what the root reality is. That's super interesting. To bring it down to the people's level, I read a book, this is scratching my brain to remember the author's name, I forgot the name. It's about the power of mushrooms. And shrooms are fascinating because of their ecosystem rehabilitation powers. Yeah, yeah. They even say that after a wildfire, the spores are the first thing that sort of settles the, what do they call the, when everything is burned down, the ashes. Spores settle the ashes and the first thing to lay root again are the shrooms. And then you've got the mycelium shifting nutrients. Like I was blown away. The book had examples about mushroom being used even to treat contaminated areas by chemicals. It just absorbs it. It's just incredible. Areas polluted with oil spills and all sorts of things. And I was looking at it through the lenses of Australia. It's a huge place. We do have a lot of forests, but there's also a lot of very arid land. And I don't know, I guess like most people, I was dreaming of, okay, we just buy a few acres. We talk with like the local authorities, see what are the local trees. 
and just try to slowly burst it. Going at it alone, it's a lot of work. But I'm thinking from this romantic view of using mushrooms to reforest the continent, where in a timeline do you see OFP? Would I potentially pull money together with some friends? We buy it. How do we make it into a project? What's the process for generating carbons from it? Because as you mentioned, I'm even wondering like, what is a carbon credit? If it starts from like red dry land and in five years, it's got like a bit of grass and in 10 years is one meter trees. How would that measure up against say an existing forest in El Salvador? Be built around the specific methodology and the type of activity you're doing. So if you're doing improved forest management versus reforestation, it would be specific to the zone or the type of project that you're embarking on. But what we're building in OFP is the on-chain contract financing structure for you to be able to say, hey, I want to launch this project in Australia. I need $10,000 up front and I need $20,000 to guarantee that the data upload is going to work over the next 20 years. Here's the details of what I'm doing. Here's my documentations. Here's my plan. Here's everything like this. Do you want to fund this? I'll give you 30% of all the credits generated on a contract level. If you get funded for that, the contract would hold that $20,000 in escrow. It would give you $10,000 up front. And when you upload your data upload and your data upload is approved, you will get a trickle of that $20,000 out for each data upload. And then the investors would get a portion of the credits created directly back to them. That's, that is possible and that's what we're building into the system. So to confirm, this isn't live yet because I was about to ask how many projects have we funded? What is like the median range of no, funding? This is probably a year and a half away because it's a big contract lip that we have to build into the existing validation design and project design that's just now going live. But within three to four years, within three to four years, their Norwegian sovereign fund could put $300 million into a, an escrow contract that will release five million a year to a green wall of Africa mega initiative when they upload their data in a routine. So it's, it accommodates all forms of financing. You could build a nature-based capital fund on top of this type of thing where you, where you raise $20 million and put it into seven different projects to harvest and basically issue carbon to you over the long run. We're just at the very beginning of the financing part of the house. One and a half years works really well for me. I'll start looking for real estate. And you'll let me know what to do. I'm happy to be a guinea pig. You've also mentioned the OPN token, just to confirm that it's also not live now. Is there any mm -hmm. ETA for our- going to go live in about a month and a half. Mechanism half. there. Do we have any cultural actions for the audience? How can I help? Yeah, no, really right now, it's going live about four or five months before the first pieces of value or yield could come through to those tokens. So- this is the first time where we did not do an IDO. We did not do a public sale. So this is the first time that anyone who is not in the pre-seed or the seed rounds is going to be able to get exposure to these tokens at the market price. We're still picking the exact platform that we'll be launching it on. And uh, yeah, it's just getting it out there for the world to gain exposure to these things before carbon comes in. There's a significant amount of content that can be built pretty easily to say it's a no-brainer to look at this asset seriously if you believe that it's actually going to be bringing carbon onto the platform and yielding carbon for what's to come in the next two to three years. This may seem random, but I'm getting somewhere. What are the number of transactions on chain 
that you think OFP can create? Or conversely, the number of wallets? The pure mechanism is going to be not a lot of transactions. The wallets will come from the financial, from the value creation on top of the protocol in the form of carbon credits and participating in the carbon credits. It's, it's a high density protocol in the sense of for the number of transactions that it is putting on chain, it is creating ton of value for those transactions if it goes through. The reason why I ask is because I guess the, the state of the metrics and analytics in Web3 is really up for grabs. There really isn't a criteria. I know the foundation, when they try to assess the impact of certain initiatives or programs or the success of a project, sometimes they try to look at on-chain data because, you know, it's Web3. But the nature of projects can have very different results. Like for instance, some of the on-chain order books now are putting a lot of transactions through because they have oracles and they've got an index price. But something like Metapool, we have more value locked than any of them. But the nature of staking, it's actually good that there aren't many transactions because it's mm -hmm. either stake in, stake out, or transfer the token, even though it's being used as collateral for millions of dollars. So I was really interested to see the dynamic between the real tangible value in the form of the assets that the protocol creates and controls and how that may translate to some on-chain metrics, mostly because I do think that it needs revising. It's really frustrating yeah. to me that sometimes they compare some of the blockchains by the amount of transactions they put through. That's really not indicative. Sometimes they compare it by the number of wallets. That's really not indicative, especially if we're moving into a world of account abstraction. The one that really infuriates me is when they measure it by protocol revenue, which is yeah, which is referring to the amount of fees the protocol charges. And I'm like, that's not a feature, that's a bug. But anyway, that's just a side tangent. That's hitting the nail on the head. We've had this discussion many times. And for us, we look at total hectares locked on the protocol. So how many hectares from the real world are tokenized as projects and uploading data on a reoccurring basis to be considered locked for the long run. And then we look at what would be ecosystem generated value. So how much value is being natively created in this ecosystem that can then be used composably outside of the ecosystem or in, in near specifically. We're not interested in the existing metrics. I think five years from now, people are gonna look back and be like, yeah, those were really not super helpful for actually unlocking the value that crypto can offer. And I agree, although I am wondering if you do have six months timeframes, maybe there could be a way to have a pulse or just to prove that the validator or the project is still online because you'd want to avoid six months coming in and you're like, oh shit, the carbon yeah. don't actually exist. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're starting to wrap it up and we will definitely need to have you back for NDC and all the other areas. There is one question that you alluded to in your thesis and I'd like to know what your current thinking is because I know that the writing is from six months ago and science is moving at breakneck speed. I'd like to know your thoughts on modern technologies. We're talking about the importance of forests, but I know that there's all sorts of initiatives for carbon sequestration, also more efficient or modern ways of creating electricity that may be a lot less carbon intensive. I'm thinking nuclear fusion, a any thoughts on those areas and how it could potentially relate to OFP? Broadly, there's two games being played on the topic of climate. One is the domain of OFP and the domain of species and the domain of nature and the domain of these natural assets. And it's all about saying, what's our relationship to our earth and how healthy is our relationship to our earth? And that is bridged then over and connected to the second major discussion, which is how are we creating energy 
and how sustainable is our energy creation in relationship to our earth in the first place. Uh, the way that I see this very clearly is OFP is trying to serve, conserve, and reset our native relationship to the environment. And we probably need significant amounts of money, research, and investment into material science to facilitate the necessary breakthroughs to really reestablish a better relationship with energy, right? Instead of relationship with energy, relationship with the environment. I think nuclear is great. It'll take a long time to implement. I think it's 27 years to pay off your the carbon cost of your nuclear power plant. So really what we need to do is we need to figure out how all those fucking ancient civilizations got those rocks up so high and chiseled those rocks in, into all those places together without using the energy systems we have if we really want to get there. Like that, and that's really yeah, the think, holy grail, right? I think you and I know how they did it, but... On that topic, and this is something I think for, that's difficult to have that discussion with climate people because you need to approach both. You can't just only focus on energy because as we saw from the graphics above, what's leading to massive deforestation rates around the world on the 47 million hectares a year, it's agriculture, it's urbanization. It's just a lack of underlying incentives on a very human level that doesn't always have anything to do with energy in terms of oil and gas production or emissions, straight emissions per se. I really think that we need to clarify we have a natural habitat, we have old growth forests, we have million year old species, and then we have our relationship to energy. And there's a small bridge between those two. And we should approach this problem and we should revolutionize this problem. And hopefully they'll coalesce as one thing and we'll all be happy. I'm not optimistic, but that's one. But it's a good yard start to have. I actually really like how we're ending where we started and wrapping it up. I really like this framing of carbon as a missing link. And you capture it really neatly on the thesis. Yes, even if you do have clean sources of energy, that's going to take a long time. So that's a problem that we may have to face later on. But also, they are to me complementary in the sense that it would be amazing to be able to create unlimited energy or electricity at a very low carbon output because then we don't have to continue destroying the yeah. environment to create energy which then gives us, ironically, unlimited energy to dedicate to the environment. And that's why the rejection of the socialist approach to bring everyone down to zero and the embracing of a growth mindset, actually. It's great if we control the carbon situation, but there's a shit ton of animals that are dying. And the yep. water situation is sort of being taken into account. And there's just many things that are much better accounted for under this model. Michael, as we wrap it up, I am wondering whether this is to, to be true. Have you guys faced any criticism? What would critics say about the project? What are some challenges that still need to be resolved? No one has really taken a serious shot at the fundamental design. While someone might criticize how Polkadot's designed or Cosmos's design, no one has realistically criticized the mechanism of what I described. The bulk of the criticism centers on can you actually get quality from these projects? Is it possible to improve the quality to match the existing legacy system that's very expensive and very handholdy? And the way that I approach that is just very much from a network iterative perspective of, okay, maybe the quality is not there right now, but the quality will be there in the future. And the fundamental design of the system is such that it will only improve. A similar analogy of SpaceX. It's a lot like saying when SpaceX was first created, 
were their rockets going to rival NASA's? Not for the first 10 years, did they? Not anytime soon were they going to rival NASA's, but the fundamental logic, first principles thinking underlying the design of their system had them eclipsing NASA and actually leading the way now 20, 21 years into that reality. We're in a similar boat. As long as the criticism is not directed towards the underlying system design of the project, I'm not too worried about the details because we'll fix and work out the kinks of the details over the next five to 10 years. It's a fundamental difference between proxy validation and you use third parties and commonly accepted wisdom as the validation for what you do or going back to first principles. That's what kept SpaceX alive. People may not be able to understand it, but if the maths add up and the physics adds up, at least it's worth trying. And I think that a project, this one would probably be the same. I don't think I have to tell you that as the project gains more prominence, there will likely be more than one critical voice, whether, you know, it is well-founded or not. So yeah, happy to be in for the ride. Thanks, man. This has been a lot of fun. This is probably the deepest dive we've done on this to date with anyone. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how it comes out and what the reception is. And I think there's a lot to talk about in this conversation. So really only just touch the surface of what's to come. I know. And what may be a part two or we may leave out altogether. Let's just keep rolling and see how we go. I know that you're very active and deeply connected within your ecosystem from the early days. Now with the NDC. I'm really curious to know, A, what is the OFP relationship with the NEAR ecosystem as a whole uh, and the foundation? Are you guys getting enough support, visibility, recognition? And the second one is, any thoughts on the most recent changes to funding, the approach to being whatever product-led, an accelerator? There's been a lot of changes in the last 12 months. Where are we at? Bullish, yeah. bearish? Here's a massive restructure going on across crypto where people are grappling and grasping at how to get real value and how to move out from the days of the Ponzi, which we lived through last year. P's relationship with Nier is quite good, largely because there's aligned narratives and there's aligned hope in the future of both. We want Nier to succeed and be big, to help OFP succeed and be big. And if OFP is successful and big, it will help Nier get more successful and big. So we're joined at the hip in terms of our trajectories. On the Nier side, I know... They are doing some significant restructuring to try to better, to improve the quality of projects coming into the ecosystem and change the way that they support projects. And I welcome that. I think that there's a lot of very smart people in the foundation now that have very good intentions of growing the ecosystem. And really what we need to do is just give them time. Just so if he needs time, we need time to watch these systems roll out and to come to fruition and to overall evaluate their impactfulness. So we will know. If both these, this shuffle up and if the kind of new approach to the ecosystem is successful, probably in the middle of the next cycle around 2025. I think I agree. Transitions are tough and there's been no shortage of change in the near ecosystem. In some ways, I think that we may actually be able to draw a parallel with those first principles thinking and the courage it takes to think things through and then stick to it. I know that near has been criticized for basically not embracing that mainstream crypto feed dogs breathing each other. And I think that the bear market may actually start giving us that edge where being very product focused, being very tech focused, like at a core design level may start giving us that edge. I love the emphasis on now when you refer to the very smart people at the foundation, there are some questions that need answering 
from some of the previous decisions and previous programs. I'm going to say it here. Some people were burned. They were burned pretty badly. Oh, yeah. Always, man. Uh, Always. This lack is, of funding, this is ghosted, industry. shady deals, trust has been shattered. I know entire regions that are now skeptics. So I think that it is not fair to blame the new crew, but yeah. also we almost need like a truth and conciliation commission. About a few like high alpha meetings this week. The shit coming in 2023 has a lot of potential. If we're able to execute even to a reasonably well standard, it yeah. should be a very good year. But yeah, I'm just really curious to hear the thoughts from a fellow OG. You've seen it all. Yeah, it's going to be a defining year. And I think it's fair. This is the last lesson of economic history. That's the most depressing one, which is the early innovators tend to be paupers and they either die in poverty or kill themselves in poverty because not often are they able to benefit from the fruits of their innovation for whatever reason. And I think this is the kind of the tragic component to innovation is like there is arbitrage, there's human arbitrage, there's all these terrible things. And hopefully this year we can set the record straight as much as possible and turn the page and focus on a conjoined kind of fruitful future building altogether. But it remains to be seen. We have to deliberate. We have to make sure it, it works, right? As stupid as it may be to resist the lessons of history, that is one lesson that I struggle with. And at first, I first heard about it, it would have been like 2013. I went to a meetup yeah. in Australia. It was this prolific Australian founder, which has, he's since been disgraced. Some dealings with the Chinese went sour, but he is very smart. And he yeah. was explaining about the areas where they operate in and the areas where they don't. And his assessment yeah. for risk and regulation and opportunity. And he said something mind-blowing to me that was, first movers never make money. You waste a shit ton of money and you take all the hits. You've got like that accrued debt. You know, it's like if you're playing those fighting video games, like your life line goes, is decreasing. And the minute you hit product market fit, you have people starting from scratch. They just raise funds. They've got an army. They're fresh with energy. So it was a really interesting reflection. Tesla may be an interesting sort of case study to follow there. They have open source all the technology. Cars are becoming commonplace. A bunch of brands now have equally good vehicles. And maybe for near, you could say that we are in that category of not the first movers in the sense that we have certainly seen a lot of the lessons from the Ethereum crowd, then though we are first in a lot of near unique features and applications. But yeah, in general, the reason why I struggle with it is there's definitely people that are making money like while they're alive, like technology, mm -hmm. like something in the seventh has changed. Great, man. Thank you so much for doing this. I'll see you in couple months for ETH Denver, we'll do some, maybe we could do a live, we could do a live round table with Peter and everyone and do like a fun ass jam that way. Yes. I only ask one thing. I need help getting proper mics. I did a yeah. live in Korea and the audio was so bad. I couldn't use it. you didn't have proper mics? I was using this thing on a table with four people. It was shit. Okay. I think I have one of those, but we can definitely try to get, we can try to get it set up by Mark for sure. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. Looking forward to hearing this. I'll send it to our family and OFP. This is going to so be good. Thank you for your time, man, and stay safe. I'll see you in a couple months. 
that's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, let's be honest, you are amazing! And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you soon. Bye.